This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. There's really only one way to introduce my guest today, and that's with this. Grow up in North Carolina, and it's hard to get too attached to a beach house, knowing, as you do, that it's on borrowed time. If the hurricane doesn't come this autumn, it'll likely come the next. The one that claimed our place, the C-section, in September of 2018 was Florence. He was devastated. While my only thought was, what's with the old-fashioned names? Irma, Agnes, Bertha, Floyd. They sound like finalists in a pinochle tournament. Isn't it time for Hurricanes Madison and Schuyler? Where's Latrice? <laughs> or Category 4 for Dante? Florence, it was said, gave new meaning to the word namaste along the North Carolina coast. Are you going to evacuate? Namaste. <laughs> that is the unmistakable voice and writing of the one and only David Sedaris. Some humorists today simply assault the senses with expletives for a laugh. But David Sedaris is far too clever for that. He seduces the listener with a quiet, measured tone, sneakily delivering a wry observation or acerbic zinger that belies an unmatched wit. His humor contains the best parts of two storytelling legends, the incisive social commentary of Dorothy Parker and Noel Coward. There is simply no one out there like him today. Sedaris is the author of numerous bestsellers, including Me Talk Pretty One Day and Holidays on Ice. His latest book, Happy Go Lucky, details his experience in lockdown during the pandemic, alongside chapters of coming to terms with his father's death. It's a hilarious 
and at times heartbreaking collection of essays that dive deep into Sedaris' dysfunctional upbringing and its continuing repercussions. I was curious to learn more about his childhood and the surroundings where he first grew up. Western New York State and moved, I don't know, second grade, however old you are, at the end of the second grade. Like eight-ish. Moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. To Raleigh. I spent nine out of ten summers in uh, Figure Eight Island off the coast of Wrightsville Beach because my ex-wife had made a film there. And I spent many summers in North Carolina and really grew to love it. I mean, we would go down there sometimes and have Thanksgiving down there and swim in the ocean in late November. Did you love North Carolina growing up there? No. <laughs> no, I didn't want to be there at all. I, I wanted to be back in New York State. Why? I just, it was hickish to was me. It? I don't know. I was just so convinced my life would have been so much better if we had never left. But the town we lived in, in western New York State, you know, it was a dump. I mean, I didn't realize that at the time, but all the industry left. I mean, Raleigh, where we moved, every time you go to Raleigh, there are another million people living there, and it right. just like spilled milk, you know, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Binghamton, where we were living before, has actually gotten smaller. Population has decreased. You know, like sometimes you meet people from West Texas, and they're like, oh, it's so beautiful. And then you think, like, no, it's not. But I think that where you grow up defines beauty in your mind. So to me, that part of Western New York State, where you're driving down the road, and there are those rock walls mm-hmm. and that are kind of weeping always, mm-hmm. and there are creeks on, on rock beds, that's beauty to me. Your childhood, your father uh, had a good job. He worked for, I- was it IBM? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you lived well. Sure. Yeah. Country club, you guys would, uh, the, the girls would go up to, I remember you describing in the book, the girls would go up to the buffet and, you know, and it was, life was comfortable. Well, in the, in the South, your life revolves around the country club. So when we moved to Raleigh, the Carolina Country Club was the country club and they didn't allow Yankees and they didn't allow Jews and then they really didn't, and they also didn't allow Yankees. But the Carolina Country Club allowed Yankees and then later Jews were welcome. And I wrote a story about that for The New Yorker, and they contacted, the, you know, the fact-checkers contacted the Carolina Country Club. And, and, you know, they didn't want to come out and say that, and they were like, everyone was welcome at the Carolina Country Club. Really? In 1965, everyone was welcome at the Carolina Country Club. So I had to change it to, yeah. if, if I recall correctly... So when Billie Holiday showed up at the Carolina Country Club, <laughs> they, uh, they, poured her a, they poured her a cold one. Um... I don't want to say that this is what I read in your piece, but you can tell me. And I don't want to say that we have this in common, although we, we might. And that is, I was always made to feel different in my family because I was the oldest son. My family mirrors you in terms of you have an older sister, and mm-hmm. then there's you. Yeah. You're the second, and you're the first boy. And mm-hmm. in my family, my grandparents, my father's parents who lived in Brooklyn, who were like a 45-minute car ride away, we saw them constantly. We went to see them, like, at least a couple times a month and go hang out with them. And I was treated differently from everybody else. I was older. I was more adult-identified. You know, the other kids are falling asleep on the couch. It's Sunday. We've watched Ed Sullivan. We've watched Candid Camera. And my grandfather would point to to me and look at my father and go, let him stay. 
And my father was like, oh, Jesus Christ. And he'd carry the other kids down to the car with my mother, put them in the car. They were passed out and drive and have to come back and get me. You know what I mean? And uh, I look at my grandfather and go, Grandpa! I'm like seven years old. I'm like, why do you and I, why are we such pals? Why don't we get along so well, Grandpa? And he said, because we have a common enemy. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> what? You know? And I was just treated differently. Yeah. I mean, it was always hard for me to understand, you know, other people in my family. My brother, for instance, he was a great guy, but he never had any desire to leave Raleigh. Terribly, terribly funny, my brother. And when Amy was at Second City, we tried to lure Paul to Chicago to get him to go to Second City. He would have, he could have, could have done anything, but he wasn't interested. Never, Why do you think? I don't know. From from early age, I just wanted to go. I just wanted to go, and I wanted to go everywhere I could and get as far away as possible from the house that I grew up in. Right. Yeah. What was the fa- who was the common enemy, though? That My dad. Ah. Yeah. He met my son and your father. We are some we both have concerns <laughs> I about. I always love that when uh, a grandparent, like, co-ops the child and tries to train it against Well, my parent. father, but, but when you leave and you don't finish school... And then you go to Chicago to get into the comedy world. You want to perform. No, I went to school uh, for a year. Like, I, I made, like, I don't know, C's in high school. You know. And college? And then I went to college, uh, and I went to Western Carolina University, right, in the mountains in North Carolina. And then I thought, wow, I got to get out of here. And so I worked really hard, and I made good grades, and then I could transfer out of state. And so I chose Kent State. But I thought it was a good school. It was famous because it was a good school. But it was just famous because people had been killed there. So then I went to Kent State. And then I was, like, super anti-drug in high school. And then I just uh, was drug crazy when I was at Kent State. And then, you know how that is. You miss an Italian class, and then you miss five Italian classes. And then you're afraid to run into the teacher. And I was wake and bake. Then I just dropped out. And then I dropped back in to school when I was 27, and I went to the Art Institute. And it was mainly because I wanted to come to New York, but Chicago seemed like a good stepping stone, you know, like a... It is for many people. Yeah, and it still is. So it was a, it was a perfect place to go, really. So I went to art school, and then I took some writing classes while I was there. I'd been writing already, and I really cared about writing more than art. But it was a smart move on my part because they had really good teachers at the Art Institute, writing teachers, but nobody, it wasn't a major, and I was the only student who cared. So the teachers gave me all their attention. It was like having my own private uh, teachers. But uh, I got a really good education at the Art Institute. So when you left Kent State and you go back to finish, what do you do, how many years are intervening, and what do you do during those years? I did a lot of drugs. I moved back to my hometown. And but not I, to your house. You got your own place. Yeah, I got my own place at least. And I just, you know, on my deathbed, if they said, okay, what years did you waste? You know, what years would you like to have back? And those would be the years from when I was 20 to when I was 26. I mean, I, I rode every day, so I was working. You know, I, I was never a, a lazy person that way. Like, it, well, you know, when I was doing artwork, I did it every day. And I started writing and when I was 20, and then I did it every day. You know, maybe I didn't have a job job, but I was doing that stuff every day and reading about it. And I was on fire. 
You know, you know, like when you meet somebody and they'll say, well, I want to be a writer or I want to be an artist. And I say, well, is it all you care about? Because if it's not, it's going to be pretty hard for you. You know, if you're not on fire, you know, you meet people like that and you can see them. It's like, it's like opening the door of an oven, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, you take a step back and that doesn't mean they're good, but they're just intense Mm -hmm. and they're just, it's all they think about. It's all they talk about. It's all they care about. They don't have relationships. They're not good friends for other people. This is just what they're they're focused on. Yeah. Yeah. For you, writing, and you are, and I'm not just saying this, you are this remarkably talented and gifted writer and very successful writer. So when you sit down to write, what's the routine? Is there a usual routine? I just get up and go to my desk. I don't like to talk beforehand. I don't want to, you know, talking on the phone would be the worst. But I mean, my boyfriend, Hugh, you know, I might say hello. You know, we might say a few words, but I'd just rather just save it for my desk. And I just go to my desk every day, you know, not, you know, like three and a half hours in the morning. And then I go back for another hour, hour and a half at night because you're only good for so long. Yeah, I would imagine. But I do it every day. Like, you know, when I'm on tour, I just get up earlier than normal or I, you know, after I quit smoking, then I I could do it on airplanes and I could do it in the back seats of cars. So I just do it. You know, I'd find the time. You know, you always find the time if it's important to you. David Sedaris. If you enjoy conversations with insightful, observational humorists, check out my episode with Lena Dunham. I don't like a storyline that's like, you know, he bought me an entire trousseau of dresses and so I'm his forever. Like, that's just not the way that I want to idealize anything. The characters can make mistakes, but they have to be emotionally responsible for the things that they've done. I don't ever want to, like, have a makeover scenario where someone's doing better after they've put on a great dress and, you know, straight ironed their hair like it's a really instinctual thing but it's just a feeling you want them to have balance I want women this is so kind of hippy-dippy but I want them to make their own choices to hear more of my conversation with Lena Dunham go to heresthething.org after the break David Sedaris tells us about how his fraught relationship with his father changed at the end of his life Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. 
Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In David Sedaris's latest book, Happy Go Lucky, the author revisits moments of his life with his ailing father. It's an unflinching look at some of the darker chapters of their history. I was curious what the reaction has been to him revealing these family secrets. My father was, uh, I had a book signing last night, and somebody said, um, you know, they'd come to see a show that I did a couple of years ago, and that there was a, a, a woman who worked at the theater whose job it was to maintain the book signing line. And she kept saying to everybody who comes by, no one should talk about their father that way. That's a shame what he was saying up there about his father. No one should talk about their father that way. Then don't be a dick. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't believe that rule. That, so that's what I was going to ask you, is that is the rule that so long as it's true... Yeah, I'm, and I I'm, I'm feel like if you don't, if you want people to talk about you in a different way, be a good person, right? I, I, I would never, I, I wouldn't write such things about my mother. I would have no, she was a, a lovely person. She was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, she was a wonderful person. She died when you were how old? I was 34 when my mother died. But my mother was always, my mother, you know, she and I were crazy about each other. So when she died, then it was like I was kind of alone in the family. Like I didn't have a parent, you know, because my father just, he just could never stand me. I mean, it was always, you know, from when I was a kid. And I'm not saying that in a boo-hoo-y way. Right. Because I had my mother, so it wasn't like I didn't have anybody. But, you know, if somebody dislikes you that strongly and you think, well, I'll do this and that'll make them like me and I'll try this. And and then after a while, you realize, like, there's you can't nothing win. you can do. But at the very end of his life, just the very end, the past few months, you know, he started going to the front desk at his assisted living center and asking for his mother, right? Or, or you'd call and he would say, oh, the guys from IBM are all here. And we we I've just been talking to them. And he developed like dementia, not so that he didn't know who we were, but he forgot that he was a really difficult person. And he was lovely. The last time I saw him, he was just... Because before that, like if my father and I were on the phone, like all of his conversations were just superficial. How the hell are you? So how's your health? How are you? I mean, a lot of the way my dad was, it was just the way that guys were his age. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was pretty normal to slap your kids around. That was pretty normal. It's pretty normal to just come home from work and expect them all to shut up and tiptoe around you. All that stuff I understand, you know. <laughs> um, didn't, didn't really have any friends you know, any male friends. He didn't. When my mother died, I worried my dad would be lonely. And then he had these neighbors, the Wolfheimers, and they stepped in and they started inviting my dad to their house for dinner. And so he, he had somebody to hang out with. And then he tripped on some wet leaves in their driveway going to their house for dinner and he sued them. And uh, he said, it's not them who's paying. It's the insurance company. It's like, you fool. <laughs> it's not like he broke his leg or anything either, you know? Now, when you write... Happy-go-lucky. Did you feel like you needed to have permission from people? 
surviving members of your family? Did you, like, run it by them to see how they felt, or you don't think about that? Uh, no, I, I mean, I generally do. I mean, there was an essay that I sent to my sister Lisa, um, and it was called Pussy Toes, and it was about my, my dad's funeral, and I sent it to her. And I had said in there that the coffin she chose was ugly, right? And, and that really hurt her feelings. And then she responded, you know, I think you maybe need to stop writing about dad until you figure some stuff out. And then luckily I had Amy there, and Amy's like, it was ugly. You know, the coffin was just One thing with ugly. You know, but I said good things about my sister Lisa in it. But, like, there's plenty of good things. So I just, the only bad thing I said was that the coffin you Her taste out. in coffins. Yeah, that's the only bad thing. But it doesn't work, you know, if you're just hard on everybody, but you're not hard on yourself. You know, then that does, everybody can, can um, smell that a mile away. Now, um... I'm assuming that the main activity for you is book sales. You're selling books. Well, I am I think I get more from going on tour. I have a lecture agent, so I go on tour. So I usually, like this past year, I went to like 120 cities, you know, in, in theaters. So I'm right. reading in theaters. Um, so it's, but I'm saying the books that you're promoting at the time are the center of the appearance. Uh, well, usually when I, when I go on tour, like I, I have new material. And I read it out loud, and then I go back to the room and read it. It hasn't been published yet. No, it hadn't been published. And You're I'm just kind it of out. yeah, testing it out and polishing it up, and then then I usually give it to my editor at the New Yorker at the end of a tour. So I, I try to learn as much as I, on my own as I can before I turn it over to somebody else. Right. Are there cities that you go to? You said you went to 120 gigs last year. Yeah, I went to 74 cities in the fall, and then I went to. Uh, I just finished 44 more cities, and then I went to some in between there, too, in Canada and on the West Coast. But what defines city when you say 74 cities? Oh, you're right. You know, I was just in Skagway, Alaska. Okay, I think 700 people live in Skagway. A quarter of the population came to see me, though. I mean, can you imagine if a quarter of the population in New York came to see you? That'd be a pretty big uh, theater. You know, but I used to listen. Remember, you know, you'd see people on talk shows, Johnny Carson or whatever, and they would say, I'm going to be in uh, Oklahoma City or I'm going to be in um, uh, Salina, Kansas. And you'd think, what a loser. But I didn't realize at the time, if you can sell tickets in Salina, if you can sell tickets in Oklahoma City, you're doing pretty good. Of course, you can sell them in Chicago and San Francisco and Los Angeles. But if you can play the smaller towns... So I'm getting ready to go on a U.K. tour, and I'm going to a lot of dinky places in the U.K., but because I have a radio show there, so then people will come. So you're going to go to a lot of dinky towns in, yeah, in, in the England. U.K.? Yeah, in England. Yeah. Who maps this out for you? Who, who sets the whole thing? I who have a, an agent? Yeah, I have a lecture agent. And, and, and he she, just tells me where to go, and I go. <laughs> and I don't put up any... Skagway, Alaska. Yeah. And, but I'm so glad that I went to Skagway. Like a lot of those little towns I went to in Alaska, like there's no place to buy a tie. And everyone is dressed to kill something and then to bathe in its blood, right? Like everybody is a slob, right? But there was only some. I met a woman and she had, had, she had cancer. And so she was flying, had been flying from Skagway to Houston once a week, right, for treatment. And she said, well, we have good, you know, we're lucky we have good health insurance, my husband and I. 
And I said, well, how did you afford the tickets? And she said, the community. She said, when you live in a place like this, you know, if your house burns down, everybody builds you a new one. If you're sick, everybody chips in, everybody. She said, even if they don't like you. And I thought, well, that's why people live there. Because, you know, if my neighbor downstairs from me in New York, if her apartment caught on fire, I'd let her stay in my guest room, you know, for a night. But it's a little bit different. We're not, or if she needed something from the grocery store, I'm happy to go. But we're not 500 miles from the nearest hospital. We're not going to die if our heat goes out on Tuesday. So it's... It's really kind of a beautiful thing, and it's something I didn't understand, and it's something that people are willing to... It's a fair exchange to them. Like, I'm willing to exchange access to a hospital. I'm willing to exchange the ability to buy a a bow tie whenever I want to for a community, for for feeling like I'm part of a family when I walk out my door every morning. And I thought, gosh, how didn't I... how, How did I not understand that before? Author David Sedaris. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, David Sedaris tells us why we should never get under the hood of our relationships. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. David Sedaris had to pause his normal itinerary of book tours and speaking engagements due to the pandemic. I wondered what it was like to resume his schedule in a changed world. At that point, you still had to... Most places, you know, you wore masks. You wore masks on the airplane, you wore masks on the airport. But masks became a campaign button in the United States. And so one good thing about about dropping mask mandates is I don't think it's always good to have a campaign button on. I don't think it's always good to know where somebody stands from a distance of 12 feet away. I feel like that separated us even more. Mm-hmm. And I'd get on a plane. Every day there'd be some kind of a thing on a plane. Somebody would say to the flight attendant, oh, let me get this straight, right? So if I lowered my drink to drink my mask, to drink a Coke, you can't get my COVID, right? 
you know, and of course it doesn't make any sense, you know, but that's not the flight attendant's fault. So there was just, there was just animosity everywhere. You know, you just... Tension. Every day, you, it was in a hotel, it was in a, you know, nobody liked saying to somebody, excuse me, could you pull your mask up? Nobody liked being told your mask wasn't up high enough. So, but on this last tour that I went on, things seemed a lot calmer. But I did notice, everyone says perfect now. Have you noticed that? I'd like to check out of my hotel room. Perfect. It's the answer to everything. Perfect. And have you noticed, are more and more people calling you boss lately? I'd like to check out of my hotel room. Okay, boss. More coffee, boss? And I said to someone a while ago, I said, you know what? I don't want to be a pain. I said, please, please don't call me that. What am I supposed to call you? I said, sir, would work. I said, that's what I call you. But I've, I noticed an uptick in that, and I'm not sure where that comes from. I noticed, you know, for me, my experience during the COVID, which has made me so, you know, I got a lot of kids. I got six, I'm 64 years old, and my wife's having another baby. So it's insane. It's insane. I think that's nice for the kids, though. I think, it, I mean, I, I feel, I don't know, I kind of always feel bad for someone who's an only child. But if you're one of six, I think that's the greatest thing you in the world. You grew up in six. Yeah. No, I grew up with six, and the only thing I find is that when you're when they're six so tight together, they're going through these changes so quickly. So someone, my son, they they get all this from a TV, and we have every filter on there you can imagine. Now my son Romeo, he's just the most exquisitely beautiful child you've ever seen in your life. He's gorgeous. I think all my kids are beautiful, but my son Romeo is very sweet and very tender. And he's very seductive, and everyone's constantly running their fingers through his hair and massaging him and How loving is him. He's uh, he's four. Okay. And uh, I said to him, "Now you, I don't want you to bring these toys to the dinner table, because you don't eat." I said, "You're playing with the toys, and you're not eating. I want you to eat, and then we'll play with the toys." And he looks at me and he squints, and it was literally like he literally was mimicking unintentionally Eastwood to me. He looked at me and he goes, "You're a bitch." <laughs> And my mouth goes down to the floor of the playroom. We're in the playroom of our house on Long Island. And I go, and I'm going to try not to laugh. And I go, what did you say? And with this like really tough inflection, he goes, I call you a bitch. <laughs> like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> wow. And I thought to myself, oh, and all of them go into a place. And right as one, there's one leaving that phase, one fully in that phase, the other's coming into that phase. <laughs> so I got three kids who in various times of the day are going, fuck you, you know? And I'm, I sit there with my wife and I go, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Now, a lot of what you do, I mean, uh, uh, Santa Diaries, Santa Land Diaries, which everybody knows that piece, and it becomes, that is like the annual classic on the public radio crowd. And everybody loves Santa Land Diaries. And, but a lot of it is due is your performance. You know, a lot of it is your, you know, you're like, this black comedy, you might as well be Olivier. You know what I mean? You just got it down, the readings and the inflections. No acting for you? You never wanted to act on camera, ever? I was in uh, drama club in high school. And when I, when I remember in class when we would have to read out loud, before drama club, I would think, oh, call on me, call on me. And I couldn't believe it when the teacher would call on somebody and they would do a shitty job reading out loud from whatever, even if it was, even if it was cold. Do you know what I mean? Like, I thought, I can do it, you know, give it to me. But then on stage, I never know what 
to do with my hands, right? So I'm not a, I'm I freeze up physically. And Peter Fairley um, said to me a couple of years ago, he said, I'm doing this TV show. I want to write a part for you. And I said, oh, that's so sweet of you. I said, but I'm not, I'm not an actor. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to make you one. I said, no, I, I really am not. I said, I don't know what to do with my hands on stage. He said, I'll write a part. You're, you'll be somebody who was born without arms. <laughs> You're a limbless you were a limbless attorney. But then I thought, you know, if you were an actor with no arms, you'd be like, what the fuck do you mean I didn't get the part? Yeah. But I like my little station. You know, I'm just there at my lectern. And they often say when I get there for the sound check, do you, you, you move around? I say, no, I'm just going to be here all night, just right here behind my... You're a lazy bastard. I don't know if it's lazy. I just... It's not you. I don't know. No, I, you know, I, I always feel like it's important to try to grow and try new things, but... Whenever they're presented to me, I think, eh, that's not really my thing. You got a few houses around the world, New York, North Carolina, the English countryside, Paris. I mean, I always wonder, with somebody like you, the home in England and, and, and Paris, there's places I'd love to go to to live. I really would take my whole family with me. We'll work it out. We'll figure it out. I don't know if the schools are right. We'll, we'll tell, I wanna, I'd love to live in London for a couple of years. And because New York is just such a mess. I mean, I tell people, I go to other countries and you come back and New York is the filthiest city in the world. Yeah. But no one is motivating people in the city to be civic-minded. No one's saying to them, we live here. Let's do things for the people. And the people who live here, this is their home, they come last. The people who reside in New York come last. And that always irks me. Because other cities I go to, I'm like, they have, I was in Rome shooting a film. I'm like, the place is gleaming. It's clean. And there's bathrooms, too. This is the hardest city to pee in. That's why if I get, when I get old, I want to live in Tokyo. You've never seen, every subway station has a sparkling clean bathroom. And every, there's a 7-Eleven on every block or a, a lost My courtroom in, scenario. And every one of them has a sparkling bathroom. And they invite you to use it. You don't even have to buy anything. So when your bladder runs out, you know, wears out, that's where you need to go, to Japan. Uh, I said to my wife, I said to her, let's take the kids and go live in a hotel, a luxury hotel. And we'll go and live in eight different cities during their childhood. And we'll move every year. Rome, uh, 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 Vienna, I'm dying to go. And we do that. Well, everybody acts like having your kid change schools is going to traumatize that child forever. You get used to it. You know, my boyfriend, Hugh, his dad was with the Foreign Service, so he lived all over Africa when he was growing up, and they moved all the time. They, they survived. You met him where? In New York, when I very first moved to New York in 1990. I was doing a painting job with this woman, painting an apartment, and we needed a ladder, and she knew a guy who had a ladder. So we went to his loft, and I met him, and I thought, oh, that's going to be my boyfriend. And... Maybe might not happen today, might not happen tomorrow, but and I crossed it off my list. And, yeah, and it worked out, you know, 31 years. Someone's got to stay together, right? What's the secret? Never to discuss your relationship. With, with other people. With each other. No, with, with each, each other. other. Yeah. No. You can talk about it with other people, but you never look under the hood of your relationship. Ever. I can't wait to go home and tell my wife that. Yeah. Never. Because my wife that. is pretty much lives under the hood. No. She probably lives up there. She got the lamp hooked up. 
She got yeah. She got that lamp on a hook that the engine mechanics have. Oh, she got it all, man. Yeah, no, you she can't do stop. that. She doesn't stop. And then I think one person in the relationship has to make themselves indispensable. And so Hugh has done that with cooking, and then with I don't open any envelope that doesn't look like fan mail, and so Hugh opens all the mail and takes care of all that stuff. And, you know, there's always something going on, like the, you know, a hurricane destroys the beach house in North Carolina or, you know, there's there's a leak at the house in Sussex. He takes care of all that. He's indispensable. No one, I'd have to hire five people to replace you. He's Dennis Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's husband. He's taking care of all the things off stage. Yeah. And, you know, he's got his own stuff going on as well. I remember my dad saying one time, out of nowhere, we were in the car, and he said, you know, I've never cheated on your mother. And it it came out of nowhere. We weren't talking about anything. We weren't even talking. He just said it. And then I thought, well, that makes it sound like you have, right? So when I say I've never cheated on Hugh, that makes it sound like I have. But, I mean, I think that's part of it, too. It's important to both of us, and so we've always been able to trust the other person that way. And so... You're lucky. Why not stay You're lucky. together? You're lucky. Yeah. The thing about you that I learned from reading and knowing you on the air and listening to you and reading your essays and so forth is that you're one of those rare people, and I think you really are one of those rare people, where for the most part, I mean, there might be some amendments, you ended up exactly where you wanted to be. Exactly. You're doing what you want to do. You live with the person you want to live with. Your life is this wonderful life. And you're it, and it all is like, I really would have to struggle to figure out how it could be any better than it is now. But it's, it's exactly the life I imagined my, for myself when I was young. And I don't know what I did to make it happen other than work. I mean, I was never a hustler that way. I never tried to get people to you know, read what I'd written or allow me to read somewhere. I just waited for people to ask me. And so, and I would say yes, and then somebody else would ask, and I would say yes. And so, but, you know, people like for someone to be their idea. You know, they don't they don't like to be manipulated. They don't like to have their arm twisted. You know, but if it's your idea, people people like helping people, you know, but let them help you. Mm-hmm. Don't put it in their ear don't make the suggestion just be the kind of person that people want to help and people will help you um, I just want to say thank you so much thank you I'm Alec Baldwin Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio once again David Sedaris at that moment two EMTs bounded in both young and bearded like lumberjacks Each took an elbow and helped my father to stand. Are we going somewhere, he asked. Back to the hospital, the woman shouted. All right, my father said, okay. They wheeled him out, and the woman explained that while the staff would remove bloodstains from the carpet, it was a family's job to get them off any privately owned furniture. I can bring you some towels, she suggested. A few minutes later, another aide walked into the room. Excuse me. She said, but are you the famous son? I'm a pretty sorry excuse for famous, I told her, but yes, I'm his son. So you're Dave. Dave Chappelle. (laughs) 
Can I have your autograph? Actually, can I have two? Uh, sure, I said. I just joined Hugh in cleaning the easy chair when the woman, who seemed slightly nervous the way you might be around a world-famous comedian who is young and black and has his whole life ahead of him, <laughs> returned for two more autographs. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.